Hi everyone, Heather here. Just like last week, our episode today will touch on some topics that may be difficult to hear, such as kidnapping, physical assault, rape, and incest, and we'll also describe intense BDSM scenes. If you're not in a place to hear about these things, we welcome you to check out some of our other episodes. With that, let's get this party started. With Greer now safely rescued from the clutches of a scheming dictator, Embry has to come to terms with himself, the path that led him here, and the man that brought their strange family together. As quiet as things seem, perhaps all is not well in New Camelot. I'm Heather Songster, and this is Hopelessly Romantic. Welcome back, readers and romance seekers, to another episode. Today, we are going to see American Prince to the end of the story after we left off last week. To tell the truth, physically speaking, there's not so much left in the book to be read, but there's a lot piled into this last third of the story. It is very possible that today is going to be another shorter episode, but like I said last week, I can only take this book in doses. It's a lot, and I make no apologies for doing what I need to do in order to survive. Uh, yeah, I wish I was kidding on that survival joke. Anyway, let's go. The first part of American Prince is an, a good example of not a lot happening while a lot was happening, if that makes any real sense. There was one goal, to rescue Greer from Carpathia and return her to Ash. This was managed, but we also got a ton of backstory, time jumps, and, well, bunches of sex. I am talking hardcore BDSM pornographic sex. Sex between Ash and Embry, uh, between Embry and Greer, and then between all three of them at once. There was a lot of brooding on Embry's end. He's a very stereotypical, preppy, spoiled rich boy that went to play soldier and believing himself undeserving of love from both Ash and Greer. He's got a few issues to work out, for sure, so uh, let's see how he does. We last left our trio as they had just gone through a therapeutic sex session for Greer. She was obviously not okay after her abduction, and Ash figured that some intense BDSM was just what the doctor ordered. And because this is fiction, it works. Merlin catches up with the three of them. He's clearly deduced that they've all started boinking each other, and he doesn't particularly care on a personal level. However, his main job has been to get Ash in office and to keep him there. A love triangle between the president, his first lady, and the vice president is exactly the kind of thing that would get Ash out of that office. Well, if he'd run on a Republican ticket, apparently nobody would give a crap. If it got out, it would be just fine, I guess. No, the party that runs on family values and moral superiority would ca- would not care one whit about supposed marital infidelity. Not as long as it's happening to one of their guys, and he keeps doing what they and their corporate sponsors want them to do. My apologies, I'm writing this portion of the script the day before the 2022 midterm elections, and I'm a little on edge. I hope y'all voted. Anyway, Merlin is discussing the fact that they need to keep things on the down low, and Ash is considering only doing one term. He takes a lot of stock in his newfound family, and he's willing to give up his power to do it. Greer and Nembry soundly tell him, no, they've got their whole lives later. What's another six years? Merlin offhandedly suggests that Greer could get pregnant. Media would eat it up and endear Ash as a devoted president, husband, and father to the voting public. Briefly, Embry is excited. It wouldn't matter who had fathered the child. He'd be thrilled to be a dad, but 
then he remembers that he'd never get to have that fully. Publicly, he'd only be a bachelor uncle, nothing more. As part of the cover story, Embry gets to have a fake date, sort of showing off for the cameras. He's always been a sort of playboy, as it were, and I guess the voting public is used to seeing him have lots of dates. When he's sour about this, the cabinet member who's helping him set up this story reminds him that Greer and Ash are playing for the cameras too, and sends him a picture of the two of them showing off, happy and very in love, on their honeymoon. My heart jerks at the sight of it. I want to be there. I want to be with them. A part of me is hurt by how happy they look without me, hurt by how good they look together with their firm bodies and thick hair and catalog smiles. They are the perfect couple, America's couple, the new Camelot, as the press has dubbed them, and even I find myself sucked into the fantasy, into the urge to idolize them. Their love is so infectious, their joy in each other is so seductive, and I wonder if I was on that beach instead of Ash, if people would think the same about Greer and me. Could I ever be that transparently joyful? More importantly, could I ever make a person that transparently joyful? What I'm saying is, uh, man's got a lot of feelings about it. He's certainly gotten himself into a swing of self-loathing, and really, I'm just not here for it. I mean, I get it. Uh, Our characters need to have some space to grow into themselves and better themselves for a satisfying story, but Embry's attitude is just an excellent example of why we need more mental health care awareness in this country. He sends a text off to Ash to check in with them. Ash tells him that Mel Wass hasn't done anything since Greer's rescue, but some malware found on her laptop tells them that the dictator hasn't dropped it. Unfortunately, because of political and treaty reasons, they can't openly do anything to retaliate against Mel Wass or Carpathia. The kidnapping was still under wraps, and hopefully it would stay that way. The one thing that's really shaken up Embry, though, is how easy it was, and he doesn't feel that Ash has taken that to heart yet. His brooding is interrupted by his 14-year-old cousin, Lear, L-Y-R, I think it's a Welsh name. Embry strikes up a conversation with the young lad, gently teasing him about girls and whatnot, and eventually Embry's mother catches up with them, letting him know that Morgan was here to see him. Whatever she wanted, it was urgent, and for some reason, Morgan had an event planner with her. Embry has no idea, but if we remember American Queen, Aveline, Greer's toxic cousin, owns an event planning business, so this is about to get interesting. When Embry arrives at the library to see what Morgan wants, he notices that, one, Abilene is radiating a dangerous aura, one of ambition, so potent that he can't miss it, and that Morgan looks as though she has been crying. The chapter ends on a cliffhanger when Abilene tells Embry that he is going to do exactly what she tells him. This can't be good. We get another time jump here because we can't get anything straightforward in this book series. We mentioned in the last episode that Embry had gotten himself shot, so he'd taken time off to heal. Now that he was better, he was offered to be stationed anywhere, but Ash wasn't anywhere. He was fighting the Carpathian War. So that's where Embry wanted to be. While they'd been apart, they'd been exchanging dirty letters, so Embry was more than excited to return. On the way over, however, during a train ride to the base, Merlin finds Embry. We've only seen parts of Merlin during these flashbacks, but he wasn't working for America at the time. 
He is the only British character in this retelling of British mythology, and as such, he'd been working for the United Kingdom. But here he tells Embry that he's been working for the Americans now, and that he's going to see Captain Colchester to discuss strategy. As the conversation now moves about Ash, Merlin gets a little mystical. He imparts how important Ash is to the war, and how vital it is for him to remain at his post. An American queen, Merlin had warned Greer to keep her kisses to herself, and in a similar fashion, Merlin warns Embry to keep their relationship quiet and discreet. Merlin doesn't use the phrase, don't ask, don't tell, but he implies that if Embry and Ash were to be found out, it is the end of Ash's future. Finally, I nodded at Merlin. I understand. Resentment prickled my mouth as I said it, but as tempting as it was to hate Merlin for knowing things he should know, for meddling where he shouldn't meddle, I knew it wasn't his fault. It was the world we lived in. A world that didn't think twice about sending boys off to kill other boys, but then cringed at the idea of boys falling in love with each other. It won't be forever, Merlin promised me as the train began to slow to pull into the station. It will be a long time, certainly, and it may feel like forever, but it won't be. And if you truly love him, then there is nothing you can't sacrifice. There is another book outside the new Camelot trilogy that reads from Merlin's perspective. I can only assume that it's as raunchy and sexy as the others, but I am deeply curious to know if it goes into what exactly Merlin does know. Depending on who you ask, Merlin is a bit of a time traveler, or at the very least, he sees visions into the future. It's why he's so keen on Arthur. He sees in Arthur the future of the monarchy, a united kingdom. But he can also see the tragedy careening down at them, all wrapped up in either the tryst between Lancelot and Guinevere, or problems with Morgan and Mordred. What Merlin knows is very dependent on who's telling the story, and I am very curious about what this Merlin knows, even if he is too helpless to stop the incoming tragedy. It takes all of Embry's self-control to keep himself from kissing Ash as they meet up. Here he does reference Don't Ask, Don't Tell officially, and with Merlin's warning bouncing in his head, he knows how important Ash truly is. The full force of the word sacrifice comes screaming into Embry's head as Ash makes his way into Embry's quarters. Narratively speaking, the scene serves to remind us that Embry doesn't consider himself deserving of the happiness that he so craves. The entire novel is him brooding about how much of a terrible person he is, that no matter how much he imagines or wishes, he can't have nice things. And that's okay, because nice things shouldn't be wasted on a horrible son of a bitch anyway. God, I wanted to take it all back, beg forgiveness, expose it for the lie it was, because wounding him hurt me worse than anything I could have ever imagined. It gutted me to make him think I didn't care as much as he did, that I didn't want him as much as he wanted me. I, I cared more. If anything, I wanted him more, but he had to believe otherwise, because if he knew that his future was my concern, he'd wave off any and all considerations about it. He'd lay it down like it was a burden he had never wanted. Also, he could give me fucking selfish, miserable me a white picket fence. No, I couldn't allow that. Now, 
As much as I really don't like the you're too good for me nonsense that I see in so many of these books, it works a little better here because of the military context and the association with Arthurian lore. Ash, our Arthur, is meant for better and greater things. A skilled, charismatic, effective military leader is worth their weight in gold on the battlefield, and the military is all about sacrificing selfish desires to serve a greater purpose. It's like their whole thing. And if we are to elevate Ash into a position where he can do the most good, tainting him with a relationship that many at the time felt was immoral, it's the best way to stop him in his tracks. I would really love to know how the author was influenced by current American politics when she wrote these novels. American Queen was published in October of 2016, which was uh, a month, let me tell you. American Prince was published not too long after, March of 2017. The chaos that was 2020 scrubbed a lot of memories clean of that period of time, at least for me. But also, 2016 felt like a very long 10 years until 2020 just came and burned it all down. What can I say? It's been a rough decade. Politically speaking, it's been a bit of a nightmare as far as governance goes. It's no secret that I am very liberal and progressive with my politics, and I'm right up there with everyone else screaming at the Democrats to do something that makes people actually excited to vote for them. Meanwhile, the Republicans are happily running along with a billion little stress tests just to see how far they can push their fascist ideology. And, and don't come at me trying to tell me that Democrats are the real fascists. At least they're not the ones, you know, trying to invalidate my bodily autonomy, my brother's marriage, my marriage. I could go on. But considering the fact that these novels were written in 2016 and 17 tells us a lot about the political landscape in which the series was created. We hadn't completely seen the danger yet. Yes, a good many of us knew that it was bad, of course, but we didn't know how bad it was going to get. So here comes our author, bringing us a story about a new King Arthur, third-party presidential candidate, accomplished war hero, fiercely devoted to his loved ones, humble background, coming to unite a very fractured country. I wonder what these novels would have looked like if they had been written five years later. Anyway, with that tirade out of the way... Embry has told Ash, no relationship, they really can't be together, and Ash decides, um, okay, so, alright. Ash went to Embry's room with the intention of having sex. Embry understands this. He's just told Ash that he can't give him the kind of love that Ash wants or deserves. That a physical relationship and an under-the-table relationship is just as good. And Ash... I don't know if I can say that he takes this well. Um, Okay, so he gets his hand and dick all lubed up and forces himself into Embry and telling him that he'll stop. But Embry has to admit that it isn't just as good as everything that Ash wants. This is definitely a clench everything kind of moment for me. Uh, From my chair, it looks like Ash is responding to Embry's choice to keep away from that full emotional relationship with violent sex. I don't think it's assault, not really, because Embry isn't exactly telling Ash no, and we all know that Ash is mad about consent, but it's still pretty rough. And while I don't have personal experience with it, my understanding is that anal sex is not something you just go for. You gotta do some warming up, and Ash is barreling through firing on all pistons. 
But Embry doesn't break, not after every round of sex that Ash demands of him. They play in this space during the rest of their time in Europe, over three years, but Embry gets stark reminders of how fragile it all is. One of the first big reminders comes in the form of Greer's letters. We will remember how, when she was 16, Greer met Ash, shared a kiss, and Ash rightfully backed off the moment he figured out that she was uh, only uh, only 16, but she still sent them these emails. Very interesting emails, but to his credit, Ash never responded to a single one. But he reads them. And he keeps them. Embry stumbles upon Ash reading one of these letters, jealousy gnawing at him like an infected wound. Ash explains that he will never forget her, but likely will never see her again. Embry demands to know why Ash can't be happy with just him. I am happy with you, little prince. You have to understand, when I met her, I hadn't seen you in over three years, and for all I know, I'd never see you again. And I met someone who made me feel, just for an hour, the way you always make me feel. I treasure that hour because it is only the second time in my life I felt it. And I don't know that men like me are allowed much more than that. (sighs) Men like me. Ash has the exact same hangups that Emery does, if not worse. American King is going to be really interesting, I think. Eventually, Ash decides that he's ready to settle down, white picket fence, all that jazz. But Embry knows that Ash isn't done, that he won't be able to sit still after the war, that at some point he's going to have to get up again. So when Ash asks Embry to marry him, Embry says no. And I really do feel bad for Ash. He's got all of these people around him making decisions for him because they believe that he can do so much more good, but he doesn't exactly get a say in any of this. What he probably sees is a bunch of people that he loves turning him down, and that's gotta hurt something fierce. We'll probably get a billion more time skips in American King, so as much as that thought exhausts me, it'll probably help with understanding his perspective. But for now, we return to the present day, and we return with Greer's perspective. She's having a little trouble adjusting to the normality, as normal as the First Lady's life is going to be anyway, but she'd probably have soared into the role had it not been for her kidnapping. She gets a pep talk from her grandfather, unable to explain to him what had happened to her and how she feared that Abilene might have been part of that plot. Then she goes to visit the Oval Office, where Ash is more than happy for her visits. I like that the novel reminds us that Greer is familiar with this world of politics, that she's been in the Oval Office before, even before she was said to become Ash's wife. But... It is different now. Her role has changed completely and utterly. And we get no better demonstration of that when Ash makes her straddle him for some covert desk sex right there in the Oval Office. I have had a long day, Ash says, still calm, as if he is not affected in the least by our covert fucking in front of these huge windows. And I need to come inside of you. And what will you say when I do that? 
I struggle to find the words, all of the air being driven out of my chest by the deep, subtle thrust of his cock. I'll say, I'll say thank you. Not good enough. He punctuates this with a sharp thrust upward and I nearly cry out, stifling the urge just in time. I know what he wants. I'll say thank you, Mr. President. For exactly one second, I was put off a little bit by this scene. It's a little hard to consider the juxtaposition of a sexual act and what is the literal seat of power in the United States. But then I remembered that there have probably been far worse things that have gone down in that office. We had actual slaves working in the White House, for God's sake. So, you know, I got over my hang-up pretty quickly. Before she leaves the office, he tells her to be ready for him in the residence by 7 p.m., naked, kneeling, you know the drill. She does that she's told, but she can tell that Ash is in a mood with a capital M when he arrives. She must not have an anxiety disorder because the energy rating off of Ash would have completely wrecked me, and I'd have safe-worded right the fuck out. But Greer is far braver than I, and I do wonder what Ash is thinking because an angry Dom is a careless Dom. He confirms with Greer what her safe word is and does not hesitate when she repeats it. She's scrambling to keep up with him as he pulls her across the room by her hair. She asks if she's displeased him in any way, which only gives her a verbal reprimand for speaking. She gets a spanking from a crop. Then he orders her to run from him. Confused, but she obeys, and when he inevitably catches her, he does whatever he wants with her. During it all, he tells her that she belongs to him, that she is his, and makes her say it. And I think we might start to get a hint about what's eating at him. While Greer is a bit frightened, confused, she holds her safe word like a talisman or a ward against evil. The safety it promises allows her to enjoy the scene with Ash, no matter how unhinged he might seem. If it were me, though, I'd be a little concerned that he was a bit too out of his mind to consider the safe word if she used it. He seems genuinely angry about something. When Ash is finally spent, I swear to God, the man has an unholy stamina. He checks in with Greer. He knows that he might have pushed her too far, and he wants to make sure that she is all right. She said she's fine. His anger didn't really frighten her. It just hurts her heart. I'm not sold on this, but then again, not everyone gets freaked out when their partner is angry for an as-of-yet-unknown reason. And it turns out the reason is that Melwas had set up cameras in that room where he intended to rape Greer. So when Embry had sex with Greer, at her request, it was caught on tape. Ash had seen the video, and to make matters infinitely worse, so has the entire internet. There is, of course, no context in the video that led up to the situation where Greer and Embry did the horizontal tango, and let's be honest, even with context, it is still crazy. And Ash admits that knowing what Embry did and seeing what Embry did are very different things. He lets his jealousy get the better of him. He lashes out at Greer that she does need to be honest about her sleeping with Embry, but he checks himself right quick. He apologizes to Greer and promises her that no matter what they face, they will face it together and he will do everything in his power to protect her. Another time skip back with Embry. He tells us how he felt the night that Ash was engaged to Jenny, 
how happy she looked as she accepted his ring, how hollow Embry felt when he remembered that he had turned down Ash's proposal to him. And that was the night he ran into Greer Galloway for the first time, how she changed him, how she was like him, a little broken, and maybe they could be broken together. He tells us how the next day Ash saw the girl at the party that wrote him all of those emails who could make him feel the way Embry could make him feel. And when Ash tells Embry her name, Embry's blood runs still. Emo mode kicks in again, and Embry tells himself that he has given up everything for Ash. Why not her, too? But I guess if you look at it from the bro code perspective, you gotta give him some respect. Back in the present time, after they'd begun to create a game plan on how to approach the media firestorm that was now ravaging the American public, Embry tells Ash that Ash isn't doing enough to protect Greer. He wants Ash to retaliate, but Ash knows that any retaliation would lead to war and war would lead to death. Ash pushes some bad buttons, reminding Embry of every death that they witnessed, every widow and child they had to console, and tells him that he wants to keep any of that from ever happening again. Embry is only focused on protecting Greer, and Ash knows that inciting a war to protect one person is immoral and stupid. The conversation turns to the people around Greer. Who can they trust? Ash says he doesn't trust Abilene, and Embry agrees, saying that he knows Abilene had something to do with the kidnapping, but he doesn't have full proof. He does, though, have a bombshell. Ash can smell the lie that he is about to drop and gets him to tell him the truth. Abilene has cornered him and wants him to be in a relationship with her. He hasn't slept with her and never will, but Abilene only cares if Greer believes that their relationship is real. He is doing it to protect both Ash and Greer from further harm, and no, Ash can't know what that harm could be. Right on cue, Greer appears and Embry delivers the lie that he and Abilene are dating. And he's mean about it, too, telling her that Abilene is prettier and how he doesn't want to settle down at all, despite what he told her on their wedding day. And he recounts this to Abilene, who is relishing the anguish that Greer experienced as he told her these lies. Embry demands to know why she is determined to ruin her cousin's life, and we get a straight-up supervillain excuse exposition. Everyone just loved and adored Greer, and Greer could have had the whole world if she just looked away from her books for two minutes. But the worst crime of all was falling in love with Ash. Somehow, somehow, she got to him first. It should have been me kissing him at that party. It should have been me as his bride. And when I tried to tell him that in Geneva, he pushed me away, told me he loved her. Abilene makes the word loved sound sordid, obscene, as if loving Greer is some sort of aberrant act that is beyond the edge of taboo. She arranges herself on my lap naturally, like it's a habit of ours. She took everything I wanted away from me, just like she took everyone's affection and love when we were growing up. And if I can't have Maxon, then she can't have you. In fact, I don't want her to have anything. 
The nightmare gets worse. Embry throws Abilene out and drinks away his misery in a bottle of scotch and falls into bed. However, when he wakes up, Abilene is lying next to him, naked. She spiked his scotch with certain drugs that made him sleepy, as well as erect, and apparently used her connections, whatever they were, to make it appear that any drugs that were currently in his system were actual prescriptions. So that was sexual assault that just happened, and she tells him, we don't know if it's true, she tells him that she's not on birth control, because of course not. I'd like to think that there aren't people actually this unhinged, but I know that there is tons of them, and Abilene's proximity to powerful people is what will allow her to do the most damage. We return to Greer six weeks later. She's preparing for a new semester teaching at Georgetown, because she is insisting to keep her job as first lady, but also is lamenting about the fact that she wasn't pregnant. Even after everything, she wishes she could have had a baby that belonged to her men, because she loved him, and my heart breaks for her. Then Embry has decided to pay her a visit. She is angry, of course, and he tries to apologize for everything that he's doing. It leads to him giving her some oral sex, and I think that it's a way for Greer to be dominant for once, to take control of the person that hurt her. After that, Embry decides to tell her that Abilene is pregnant, and there's a good chance that it's his. We know that Embry was raped. We know that it wasn't his fault, but Greer doesn't. All she knows right now is her cousin is pregnant, and possibly with the baby that Greer had wanted. She is justifiably furious, and since she doesn't know all the facts, we really can't begrudge her for her fury and anger. She kicks him out of her office, and he leaves her brokenhearted again. But the hits keep on coming. Greer gets a phone call after he leaves, telling her that her grandfather has died. We then catch up with Embry and Ash in the Oval Office. The exposition that we get here is that Grandpap Galloway was assassinated, with evidence pointing to old political enemies from 30 years ago. But we know it was Melwas, in yet another strike against Greer. Ash is still pissed with Embry, especially after the baby thing, but Embry is able to tell Ash that Abilene had drugged him, and at least Ash is able to process this appropriately, but things are forever changed between them, even if Ash knows that there is a reason Embry is doing this. During the funeral, Embry points out to Abilene that it was likely the Carpathians who had done this, and she was genuinely fond of her grandfather, so look how that alliance turned out. But they all put on their brave faces as the service goes on. The mood, though, is broken when a woman lunges at Greer with a knife, whispering the Carpathian motto as she did it. Greer was fine, but she is pretty close to having a breakdown. Embry can't stand it any longer. He feels helpless watching as Ash appears to be dragging his feet to protect Greer, and I think something in him snaps. We get a couple of flashbacks, back to when Ash's first wife Jenny had passed away. First, we see Embry confront Morgan for using that particular moment to reveal to Ash that they were half-siblings. Then we see Embry go to comfort Ash, and Ash lets out that dominant side that he has had to suppress with Jenny. Returning to the present, Embry grows to confront Ash one final time. He reveals to Ash that Morgan had a child from their time together in Carpathia, Embry's cousin Lear. He had been raised by Embry's aunt and did not know that Ash was his father. This is the big bombshell Embry was protecting Ash from by going along with Abilene. 
And then, if Ash wasn't already reeling, Embry tells him that he's going to marry Abilene and then run against him as the Republican presidential candidate. The end. I mean, it is a hell of a cliffhanger. I have got no idea how the author is going to sew this up, and I am probably not going to know for a while. But before I get into any theorizing, let's just jump into Heather's final score. So starting with the cover, it's going to get a good 5 out of 5. While not as striking as the cover on American Queen, at least to me, it still delivers. It follows through with the theme of self-reflection and possible self-loathing with the model's pose, and keeps to that minimalist design from the first novel. Drama is a 5 out of 5. The author threw anything and everything at us with this novel. Political strife, relationship angst, sexual tension, it's all in there. It's almost soap opera levels of dramatic insanity, including evil cousins and accidental incest. There is a lot to digest on the drama side, which is what made it challenging for me to read in some ways. If you aren't here for drama, then maybe perhaps go looking elsewhere. If you want the kind of tea that gets spilled over gossip lunch dates, have at it. Romance is going to be a 3 out of 5. We weren't really watching the beginning of a relationship as much as we were watching the relationship fall apart. Embry was self-sabotaging the whole way through, making choices for Ash because he thought that he knew better. Ash does call him out for this once Embry has explained everything, but the damage is already done. The relationship between the three of them looks as though it can't survive this. Ash and Greer might be okay, but it does not look good at all for Embry. Hopefully he gets his head out of his ass in the next book and we might get some real closure. Spice is getting a 5 out of 5. Uh, there's not really much else to say about it. If it is a thing that can happen in a sexual setting, it probably happened in this book. Finally, realism is getting a big fat 1 out of 5. I mean, come on. Everything about this setup is ridiculous. Merlin's presence alone is enough to muddy the realism waters, but when you pile everything on top of each other, sure, it is possible that parts of this plot might happen separately somewhere out in the world, but there are other pieces, such as two gay soldiers going at it like rabbits and no one figuring it out during the era of don't ask, don't tell, is far-fetched beyond belief. You can't tell me that with all of the sexual shenanigans Ash and Embry got up to during af and after their military service, that no one freaking noticed. I'm not saying that it's bad because it's not realistic, I'm just saying that it's not realistic. Now where does this all leave American Prince on our shelf? Well, if I hadn't said a hundred times, I'll say it again, this book is a lot. It challenged me in a couple of ways that I wasn't exactly a fan of, but it's good that I do get challenged. However, this novel didn't grip me in the same way American Queen did. I raced through American Queen like no one's business, but I had to walk away from American Prince because it just kept throwing things at me one after another. The story is captivating, the sex hot as hell, but this is one aspect of it that might knock it down a peg, as much as I don't want to. So for, for my final score, American Prince will get four brooding emo prep boys out of five. Thank you for joining me, readers and romance seekers, and I hope to see you once again for Hopelessly Romantic. If you like the show, please visit us at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to recommend a read, please email us at contact at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. 
The show is written and produced by me, Heather Songster. Our technical advisor is Kwon Cho. Hopelessly Romantic is an HBK production. And it doesn't matter what you read, only that it's what you love.